You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome everyone to season six of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to Julian of Norwich, the 14th century mystic. And I'm here with Jim and we're going to be discussing his second reflection. Welcome, Jim. Good to be back together again. Yes. Exploring Julian. It's very good. Yes. I was amazed that in reading chapter 10, it's so short, it's only a few pages, and you've gotten these two very deep reflections out of it. Um, So the second dialogue is also about chapter 10, but uh, there's so much depth in one chapter. Do do you think every chapter is like that, Jim? I I do. I chose this because it does two key things that are key to all the mystics. The distinction between seeking, Mm -hmm. I found him and I lost him and I had him and and so on, and then the dropping to the bottom of the ocean as her metaphor for the mystical awakening. So it's like her way of where each of the mystic teachers are concerned about clarifying that transition. And then secondly, specifically for her, or it brings out into the open our understanding of the cross, uh, like God befriending us in our suffering and in our death, mm. and in this mystical image of Veronica's veil. So it brings, but in a sense, uh, all the chapters of her book are like that. Mm-hmm. It's just very uh, intuitively dense in a disarmingly kind of simple language. Mm-hmm. I mean, but uh, like everything she says counts. Yes, like you have to you have to sit with it and and let her take you there. And she had these visions. She had a near death experience, and she she's reflecting on the visions she had. I did have a question. Like these additional visions, like the the one about the ocean, Veronica's veil. Did they come later as she was reflecting on the initial vision, or were they a part of that first experience? My understanding is is that. There's the original showings mm-hmm. at the edge of death in this ecstatic state in which she saw these uh, vivid, intimate realizations of, the, of Christ crucified and also God revealing to her the meaning of the cross is love. His meaning was love, mm-hmm. she says. So there's that. Then she spends the rest of her life living in fidelity to that and then seeing her life in the light of those visions. So what she does then is she takes the first vision, for example, and then she sits with solitary silence, like a kind of alexio, kind of in the light of the vision. And then in the process of that kind of meditative silence, she's given renewed and more interior visions. They're not the, the dramatic 
imaginary visions of seeing. But there, it's like with us, if we're if in our mystical awakening, in our daily quiet time, there's flashes and tastes and, and insights and the, the, the deepening of understanding. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, she's drawing out through years of kind of refined uh, insight into the depths of what's revealed there. And I think our own life is like that. There's an initial awakening that gets set us on this path. Mm -hmm. Might not be as dramatic as hers, but there was a first awakening. Mm -hmm. But the longer we sit with it and walk with it, there's more flashes and intimations along the way. And uh, and she's sharing hers with us. And she, as we read her, she, we join her. Mm -hmm. You know, she helps us to see these things too. Thank you, Jim. That that's really helpful to understand. And you did. I'm quoting you, but in the the last session you did talk about this idea of trying to align our heart with hers and align our intention with hers um, because she's helping us on this path. So it's just helpful to understand that, that she could have just written down the visions, but she spent a long time in this contemplative way unpacking them and being able to communicate about them in a deeper, clearer way. Yes, yeah, see, I think when she was in her anchor hold in her cell, and uh, one window looking out at the altar so she could see the mass, and the other one on the street, and people would come for direction because mm -hmm. they sensed her holiness, like contemplative spiritual guidance. And then I think what it was is she realized, or maybe they told her, look, the day's coming, you won't be with us anymore. You know? And so I think really she's writing this for us. Mm -hmm. She's writing this for us. So in a sense... Uh, even though she's been dead for years and years and years, her deathless presence shines out through the purity of her insights. Mm. So we're like one of the people coming to the window, yes. and we're still being guided by her years later. That's how I see it. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Last time we reflected on the this first contemplative vision she had um, about the ocean, kind of dropping down deeper into the ocean, her understanding, I remember the word, her understanding dropped deep into the ocean. And then after that, she has another contemplative vision around Veronica's veil, which is what you unpacked in this in this right. session. And is it true to say that they kind of both flow with the same contemplative depth, that she flowed from one to the other because there was a resonance between the two stories? Yes, I, I think this is this this is the subtle thing. I think it's at the heart of these mystical traditions. Is I saw him, and I found him, and I lacked him. And she said, so that's the seeking. Yes. Then, in the midst of the seeking, like the midst of prayerful sincerity, dropping down to the bottom of the ocean, is that when we sit in this silence, we can experience ourselves dropping down into. Uh, a more interior awareness of and oneness with more interior depths of the moment in which we're sitting. And then that depth drops down into the abyss-like depths of God, which is the mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And it goes even a, a step further. The, the abyss-like depth of God is who we are in God before the origins of the universe that our life is hidden with Christ and God. It isn't just that God's in us, but we're in God. Mm. So we're dropping down into who God eternally contemplates us to be in Christ, in divinus, like in the depths of God. And that happens in, in, the, in the quiet of prayer. It happens 
in the quiet, they're dropping down. Mm -hmm. So what she's saying is that that dropping down into that divinity of who we are in God, whatever joy we may be experiencing in the moment, say there's a happiness, when we drop down, we experience the high, high joy of God that's infinitely beyond the joy that we're experiencing. Mm. Because the joy we're experiencing is temporal, it's a moment in time, it's joy. But there's a high, high joy that transcends the joy of the moment because it's God's own joy mm. that utterly permeates and is the reality of our joy. So there's that. She's saying, however, in times of trauma, mm -hmm. the same thing can happen. In times of trauma, we can drop down into the bottomless abyss, into the bottom of the ocean because we drop down into the depths of God's sustaining love. Because in the very moment Jesus was being crucified, he was being unexplainably sustained in the abyss of the Father's heart, mm. just as we are. So it's like, like even though we die, and perhaps we are dying, and perhaps we're in pain, in the deep down depths of who we are in God, we're being unexplainably sustained in our pain. And when we die, we're being unexplainably sustained in our death. Mm. We die, but we do not die. And we don't die because God is love and love never dies. Mm. Yes. And that's the mystery of the cross. That's what she's inviting to see in the cross because then we can begin to see it in our crosses. Yes. We can begin to see it in our moments that we're going through or loved ones that are going through things or the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we can have this sensitivity about it. So this um, story, the Veronica's Veil story, I, did, I didn't grow up Catholic, so I haven't grown up knowing this story. So I wondered, Jim, if you could just unpack it a little bit more. Like, where did this story come from? It's, it's not in the Bible, correct? Is that, is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'll expand a little bit like I did in the reflection. So in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, the Stations of the Cross, if you go into any Roman Catholic church, there's 14 stations, seven on one side, seven on the other. And each one is a kind of a little statue or representation of a scene from the Gospels of the crucifixion of Christ. So the first station is Jesus is condemned by Pontius Pilate to death and crowned a thorn, scourge, and he goes on, he falls and so forth. And it goes all the way around until his death. And uh, Pope John Twenty-Third is suggesting that some churches have begun to add a 15th station, which is the resurrection, which theologically makes sense, mm -hmm. puts it into a context. So what happens in the early church is there's this tradition of Veronica, who steps out from the crowd to give Jesus uh, her veil. And it goes back very early, it's a very, it's a early, so it's kind of a, a moment in the crucifixion that lives in the Catholic imagination. Mm. And the archetypal power of the story then found its way into the devotions of the Stations of the Cross. Mm. I just was thinking of something yesterday. I was thinking about this, doing this, and I never thought of this before, that when uh, I was 14 years old, and the first time I read Thomas Merton's journal, and he said, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude to be lost in the secret of God's face. Mm. The secret of God's face can be seen as the face on the veil. Wow. Because it's the face, is, is it wants God's face and our face. And so the fabric of the veil is the fabric of our lives. And so the secret of the God's faith is the divinity depth dimension of our own face. Uh, 
transformed in and none distinguished from God's own face revealed in Christ. Wow. I never made that connection before. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. So it, if the cloth is the fabric of our lives, Jesus imprints his face in the cross, cross as present with us yeah. in the fabric of our lives. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So does this veil actually exist, Jim, or is it just an, a story in the imagination? Well, you, you just don't know because of legend and mm-hmm. so on. But but there is the veil that's believed to be, at least by some, to be the veil. And I believe it's present. You look at different sources. It was in different churches over time. It was kept in different places. I see. But I believe it now it's kept in the Vatican. Okay. And I and I think there's a I think it's once a year really there's a kind of a, a liturgy of the of the saints, and they bring out the relics yes. of, the, of the of the thing and they process them with candles and incense and and so on. So I believe it's I believe it's preserved in um, in the Vatican, and it has some comparison to the shroud of Turin, mm-hmm. which is believed to be the, the cloth that Christ was crucified in. Oh. There's a there's some kind of affinity to that i guess and veronica was made a saint in the catholic church see we don't know that she's real in other words it's a lesson but i don't i don't that's a good question Mm -hmm. we should look that up it could be saint veronica yeah um you know nicodemus one of the legends is that he and veronica got married oh really And I thought, what well, have Veronica and be your parent? I mean, have, I know that's true, but I, I don't think she's canonized. I think it just lives on as a as a moment in the in the, in the story. Yes. you know the poet the poetics of the mystery of Christ's life. But that'd be interesting. We should, we should look that yes, up and see if there's a Saint Veronica. This is um, a slight difference between the the Catholic tradition and and the more Protestant traditions. The, this idea of the imaginal, the mythical kind of kept alive in the Catholic tradition more than in the Protestant tradition. Yeah, see what you have in the Catholic tradition early on, very early on, say from the very early church, for example, during Lent, the catechumens preparing for uh, Easter and for baptism by immersion. When they come out of the water, they put a white robe on them, they receive the Eucharist for the first time. So you have a strong sense of liturgy, a strong sense of sacrament, in the Eastern Fathers and the Western Fathers of the Church, a strong sense of contemplative, uh, mystical dimensions, philosophical theology, uh, aesthetics, art, cathedrals, like states of spiritual consciousness in stone, mm-hmm. like states of consciousness and when you cross the threshold of the cathedral. And so you get this sense of um, the foundation being in Scripture, but lived out in, in the tradition, especially the spiritual traditions of the faith community. But because of the abuses in the church, when Luther corrected those badly needed mm-hmm. uh, corrections of selling indulgences and so on, because of the, it happened also during the time of the Enlightenment and reason, a lot of that just got cut off. The, the whole thing went with it. Mm-hmm. So it's devotion to the saints. This is why King Henry VIII, the, the, the thing on... Uh, the Anglican Church, too, in England, mm-hmm. and destroying the monasteries. He closed all the hermitages. So they, they burnt the monasteries to the ground. There was just such anger at the Catholic Church yeah. for its abuse. Mm-hmm. And so it lost that. Um, you don't, So you get this in the Catholic tradition, I suppose, carried forward than you do in the Protestant. You see it in the Protestant tradition through piety. Mm. 
in the holiness movement. Mm. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. The joy we share, the joy we share as we tarry there, no other has ever known. Mm. So there is that heart, the Pentecostal movement, the being born again, speaking in tongue. So it's there. But you don't get it sacramentalized in the same way that you do in the Catholic tradition. Yes. So given that the veil is, you know, that goes in this procession once a year, I guess there are people who believe the story is factually true. And then you're also suggesting that there's there's a sense that it doesn't matter. It's 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 archetypally true, it's mythically true true. That's right. See, I think that's why Jesus taught in parables. Because, see, to get the point of the parable is to get the point of life. Mm. The parable is true, but it's not true like a newspaper report. Mm -hmm. It's mythically true. That is, it reveals a deep truth of understanding how God's present in our life. So um, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you want to believe that it's physical, then believe it. But what matters if you do believe it, know that the point is the point of the story, which is what Julian is after. Yes. And how that applies to us. And the point of Veronica's veil is this sense of uh, Jesus being present with us in the fabric of our lives, and in, in particular in our suffering. Yeah, and and also in dropping down to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's why I use this imagery that when Jesus lowered his face into the veil, the softness of her veil was the only solace he could find in a world turned harsh. Mm-hmm. But also mystically. Jesus, when he put his face into her veil, Jesus, without going anywhere, that's the point, Jesus, without going anywhere, dropped down into the bottom of the ocean, into the bottomless abyss of God, where he was being infinitely loved by God, sustained by God, is the living word of God. But as Christ joining us in our suffering, in his kinetic self-emptying, he emptied himself of the ability to know that. He was like with us. He was just right there with us in our suffering. And so then I say, and poetically, Veronica dropped down, and the soldiers dropped down, the jeering crowds dropped down, and we dropped down, because in God we live and move and have our being. Mm. So what these mystical experiences are is this interior sense of this descent down into joining God in the bottomless abyss of God sustaining us, and giving itself to us away completely, see, uh, as as uh, the divinity of our life, mm. and that's the mystical experience. Yes. See, but then when the mystical experience passes as a momentary oneness, the echo of it lives on. So that in a way, the depths of God are concretely being expressed in the concreteness of the unfoldings of the day, and that binocular vision, that kind of seeing of the abyss-like depth of the divinity of everything, and what's actually happening. It's like God's the infinity of the intimacy of the moment, mm. and the intimacy of the moment is the presence of God. That's the non-dual experience, the, the holiness of watering the house plants, the holiness of lying awake at night in the dark, and sensing this abyss-like oneness. So all these mystics are trying to help us to foster that kind of habituated underlying sensitivity and Jim, did you teach in that dialogue that Jesus lost that ability that you just described in the in the crucifixion? Yes, I was sharing that uh, two friends of mine I graduated, we got our doctorates together and they're reading Julian. And so we, we talk about Julian together, we go through the text. And uh, one of them happened to be a Presbyterian minister. 
And um, he held that when he heard that I, I shared with them that he lost, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And he says, I don't, he said, I don't think that Jesus lost his faith. He lost the ability to feel, to experience the faith. Mm. See? And I, I said, it makes more sense to me that he did lose his faith because we do. Mm. See? That's what trauma is. That's what we do. But although we lose our faith, God never loses us in our loss of faith. And so God shared in the loss of God. Mm -hmm. God shared in our ability to even believe in God. Because that's what trauma does. You can't even believe in yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're actually flooded by it. And it can linger on and on and on. That's the depth dimension of being traumatized. So I think God became, this, when Jesus died, he said he descended into hell where he stayed for three days. And the hell is the loss of God. Mm -hmm. There is referring to those who have crossed over. In death, he went down into hell. And brought everyone out with him. <laughs> so, so he go. He drops down into our hell. Yeah. See, the moment where we're just their heads spinning with pain, mm. and God's hidden in it, because God, out of love for us, befriended us and is one with us in the, the perceived loss of God, who never loses us. Mm. That's my sense of it. So, even though Jesus lost his faith and his ability to experience what you were describing, that non-dual, so to, to go through the, the pain and to hold God's presence, he lost that ability, but you said that he didn't cease to be in God in a hidden way. So that, that just in the human experience, he lost his ability to feel it or know it. Here's how it helps me to see it. Mm -hmm. You know, in the human experience, there's the fluctuations of what we gain and lose. Mm -hmm. But God is not in the realm of what we gain or lose. So anything that we're capable of gaining, say the gift of faith, is something gained. I see. Is at the same time something that can be lost. By the way, sometimes in moments of trauma, we can lose our faith. And when it returns, our faith is enriched by the fact that we lost it. Mm. We learned something there. And so uh, I, I think Jesus, uh, what we have in Jesus is that God, that's neither gain nor loss, because God's the infinite fullness of reality itself, empties, God empties himself in Christ of that uh, boundaryless plenitude and joins us and in a sense becomes the reality of gain and loss. So even our gain and loss is God because uh, God joined us in it. Mm. So gained and lost. So although we die, we do not die. See? Thomas Merton used to say at the monastery, I'd, he was, uh, I'd go in, his, I was right out of high school and I would go in for spiritual direction. And he'd, he'd usually start out by saying, how's it going? And uh, sometimes I'd go in and I'd say, it's going pretty well. I, I, think, I think I'm doing okay. He said, well, don't eat much of it, it'll get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Bad days are coming. As soon as I would come in, just wringing my hands, and I'm so like this, he's. I can tell it's hard. He would walk it through with me. He said, "It'll get better." Hmm. So, what is it that unwaveringly sustains us, and is the reality of all that wavers? Wow. Well, I think we're trying to find that. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the experience. I think. Wow, that's a very touching story. It brings a tear to my eye to think of him yeah. doing that with you. Yeah. yeah. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment.
you mentioned how when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he, he lost his faith, but he was able to give assurance to the, to the thief and how sometimes we can assure others when we've, we've lost it ourselves. That's really true. For example, my daughter who works with hospice work and just people who are dying, uh, and also this can happen when you're in the midst of trauma. Sometimes when you're just utterly lost and you're in the presence of someone who's hurting, you're able out of some hidden depth of yourself to offer to them what you yourself can't find. Mm. I think that's really true. Yeah. Sometimes we can't. I mean, sometimes we can't always do that. But, but I do think there's a certain gesture, a certain reassuring gesture that comes out that touches them with a tenderness that leaves us untouched by that tenderness. Yes. You know, uh, which is the, the mystery of our interconnectedness and God's love, I think. Yeah, yeah, the mystery of love, yeah. But, but to know that the, the loss of, of it for ourselves is a temporary. Mm-hmm. But the, but the love is eternal. Because it's an experiential loss. It's not an actual loss. Because it, 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 it can't be lost. Yeah. See, Thomas Merton says, it's, it's that in us that belongs completely to God and therefore cannot be lost. Mm-hmm. But we can fluctuate and vary and lose the ability to know it and to live by it. We do that all the time. So what we're talking about is to a daily rendezvous with God, how to, how to stabilize with the taproot of the heart and the unwavering depth that's ever lost, and then experience it in the waverings of gaining and losing. Yes, yeah. And so when I'm having a bad day, I really am having a bad day, but I can know I'm having a bad day. See? Mm-hmm. I, I, so it's real important that, that my spiritual groundedness does not exempt me from the human condition, but rather empowers me to be present to it because my suffering doesn't belong to myself. You know, I'm, there's an empathic interconnectedness suffering all over the world, and I'm called to participate in it. Mm -hmm. And then reading someone like Julian, she knew that lesson. She's trying to help us with that. So her words poetically just help us experientially to enter these places in kind of a mystical way. It's it's not not a logical step-by-step, something I know. It's something I'm experiencing. That's exactly right. I think that's really it, really, that she's writing sentence by sentence with a kind of a flowing sincerity, Mm. with this clarity, and she's writing it to share it with us. So when we slow way down and quietly let in the far-reaching implications of what she's saying, we start to join her in it. Mm -hmm. It's true that we lose it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because cell phone goes off and some <laughs> damn thing happens. But, but uh, little by little over time, there can be an ever more habitually underlying constancy to knowing that God's with us in the wavering. And we can help, then help others do the same by how we're present to them. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully the cell phone won't go off today. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I had a question about, you talked about God's incarnate longing for us. And my question is, because you talk about the way God uh, kind of uh, becomes the ups and downs with us, you know, that God God giving God's self away these ups and downs. Is that longing, is it the same idea with the longing or is that something different? So the longing then for what, like God's God's, in the ups and downs with us? Yes, because you talked about God has an incarnate longing for us. And I'm wondering, yeah, yes. is, that, oh, yes. is, that, is it a, something deeper than, 
than this idea of God being present in our ups and downs. It's more foundational. Well, my, my sense is this. Like the spirit within us with unutterable groanings mm. is going to give birth to our realization of this love. See, And our longing for God, which is given to us by God, mm. to long for God is a gift of God. I see. Like Thomas Merton says, the very fact you're seeking God means you've already found God or God's already found you. And then God touches you with a sense of God, the felt sense in prayer, the consolation, the nearness. And having sensed something of, of the presence of God, then one longs to stabilize and abide in the oneness with God. Now our longing to abide in the presence of God is then, Julian says, is then an echo of God's longing for us. Mm. So God creates us as someone to long for God. I see. For in the reciprocity of the longing, union is fulfilled. Wow. Like this. Mm -hmm. And um, see, that's what she sees. That there's a chapter on I thirst, when he says I thirst. And what she sees in the I thirst is he thirsts for us. Mm. And so God infinitely desires us infinitely more than we're capable of desiring God because God's thirst for us is God. Mm. But we're graced with the longing. And then the longing is un unex unexplainably consummated in the mystical awakening. Yes. See? It's, it's consummated. But then as the immediacy of the oneness recedes, um, it's then present in the rise and the fall of our longings. But we know that somehow, this is like the poetry of this, how we want my sense of this is, so that even... Uh, when we're overcome by distractions or suffering or stress, you know, just like life's like that sometimes, mm -hmm. we get so overwhelmed, we we lose the ability to long. Mm. You know, we're just trying to get through another day, or we just kind of long that event turns out the way we hope. But we we get overtaken by it. See? But then we come to understand that God's longing for us is fulfilling itself in the moments that we lose our longing for God. Because one, God's one with us as we are, and that's what we're trying to be. Wow! And that's our trusting. Because otherwise, we're always in a uh, in a precarious situation with God. Yes, yes. So God's not going. So if you died having a hard day, God's going. He said, "What a shame! You're doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> your 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 exit was miserable. You can't get in. I'm sorry. <laughs> I play it the way I see it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but we tend to think it does. You yeah. know, and we tend to. Yeah. We, we can't get past a gravitational field where the event of the day seems to have the authority to who we are. Yes. But what if the only being infinitely loved is the only authority of who we are? And we're trying, so the mystery of the cross is dying, dying to our dreaded and cherished illusions that anything less than an infinite union with the infinite love of God can put to rest the restless longings of our heart. That's the mystery of the cross. I think the great, the crucifixion of that, of those. So God's incarnate longing for us is fulfilled in God, in like just God's present to us, his longing for us is fulfilled. And is it true to say that you talked about that we might not experience this during life but we'll know it during death? Is that the, is that the, the experience we'll have of the fulfillment of our longings and God's longings? You know, my work with people in trauma mm -hmm. 
And I also spent two years, years of internship with my doctoral program and had rotations on locked psychiatric, psychiatric units and also working with terminal patients. Throughout the whole world, there's many people that are in suffering and they die in suffering. They're dying right now in suffering. You know, In the loss of faith and addiction, the world's a brutal, sad place. We're breathing a very rarefied air here when we talk like this. And so, but we have to believe that God's present in their life, sustaining in their life. So when they pass through the veil of death, the glory is there. They pass beyond the vicissitudes of time. And then maybe through us, in just even just a moment by being present to them, they get a glimmer of something like this. You know, it's, I think it's like that. Yes. You said that we, we're here to learn how to love. How does that learning experience relate to this idea of longing and suffering? Well, I think one main way for me, for to all the mystics, for all of us, really it's the heart of the gospel to on, on mercy. We, we talked about this before with the other mystics too. Let's say there's that in us that has experientially tasted that of which we speak. That's why we find the words of the mystic consoling to us. It rings true. And the fact that it rings true, it bears witness that we are already on the path of which we speak. Okay? And we're grateful for that and consoled by that. And it's, it's a gift. But there's that in us that doesn't know it yet. And it's the part that's still reactive. It's still addictive. The part that still uh, is wayward and is engaged in ways of living and ways of acting that hurt our own body, hurt our emotions, hurt other people, hurt like this. And we're tempted, sometimes we catch ourselves on the act of perpetuating violence on that in us that needs to be loved the most. That in us that is wayward, that is us that's still lost, that in us is still, it goes on, the litany goes on and on. So what the whole mystery of the cross is, I think, what all this is about, is that when we transcend the darkness of this world to the unitive experience, it's not that we're carried off into some celestial realm beyond the darkness of this world, but rather we endlessly circle back around to be there for and with that in us that doesn't see it yet. Like to be Christ to ourselves, how to be endlessly tender-hearted, see, toward that which is still most broken or most ashamed or most, and that's the Christ experience. Mm. I think. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Because it's a, our poverty deeply expected is the openness to which the grace of God flows in our heart in the acceptance of our poverty. And I think then that's love. Mm. See? see, that's love as, as mercy, which is how Jesus lived. He, he walked the earth living this way and offering this mercy to, to us. Yes. Yeah, and we're to do the same. And in the Veronica's veil story, Veronica was offering it to Jesus, is that? That's right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What you see in the Veronica story is that then we're empowered to be Jesus to Jesus. <laughs> see? see, she steps out, she's moved see, by the Spirit to offer the only thing she had, which was her veil, yeah. at, at her own risk, at her own risk. And so when Jesus hands her back the veil, and Jesus moves on to be executed. She looks down at the veil and hears his face is on it. Mm. You see, but whose face is it? See, And um, so that's one of the most powerful things about the story about Veronica. 
See? So in some paradoxical way, can we console God? Mm. See? And we console God by consoling someone in whom God abides. Yes. There's a Carmelite priest, a hermit. He had a lovely image where he said, if you cut a tree across, you cut a tree, you see the rings in the tree. Mm -hmm. He said, but the rings of the tree run up the entire length of the tree. Likewise, the cross is where God's one with us in our suffering in time, runs right up to this present moment we're living in right now. Mm. But if the cross runs, so the resurrection is running all the way up through. And so the oneness of birth and death, mm -hmm. the oneness of the, of the life and the death and the eternal life are intertwined together inseparably as every moment of our life, which is this moment. That's like deep time. That's, that's the paroma, like the fullness of time. Yes. I was going to ask you about that. That's hard to get my mind around what that, what that might mean for me in daily life, that understanding of, of the life, death, and resurrection collapsed as the present moment, I think, was how you said it last week yeah. or last time. I think we get little glimmers of it when... Um, in the midst of an ordinary day, there's a flash of a little bit of love or tenderness or something like shines out. And it was there all the time, but the clouds part. Likewise, we get glimmers of it when we are having a hard time and release happens. So that release was always there, mm -hmm. but it was buried under the intensity of the pain. So we couldn't find our way to it. And so if we could start to see that, that the particular pace I'm in right now, maybe I'm in the life, my life meaning the day by day. Maybe I'm undergoing a, a crucifixion like a great loss. See? But out of that loss arises the deathless glory of myself. And so it's in the depths of, of quiet and prayer, we taste the resurrected light shining through the details of breathing in and out and standing up and sitting down. It's a mystical intuition, I think. Mm. It's almost like, could we so live this way in love, in a certain sense, when the moment of our death comes, nothing will happen. See? Because we've already died to everything. I mean, something obviously will happen <laughs> when we die. <laughs> we'll be dead. But, um, but interiorly speaking, could we so learn to die of love that interiorly speaking, when the biological moment of death comes, nothing will happen. Mm. Because we've already crossed over. See, so on our deathbed, you, you, you know when you're deathbed, you like I've been here. I had a, a poetic image come to me a long time ago. It says, imagine you're, it's in the middle of the night and uh, you're in bed and you're dying, alone in the dark. And you know that you're dying. And you're lying there and you look out at the, at the, at the window in the middle of the night. And... Um, the poetic image is the flowers silhouetted in the moonlight on the windowsill seem to know all about it. See, you know what I mean? There's like a deep homecoming of the primordial divinity of death in this quietness, this infinitely trustworthy and boundaryless like that. So I, I think uh, when people come to acceptance in death, that's an image of what happens. But I think we get little flashes. That's what these mystics are about. You don't have to wait till the 11th hour to know it. Mm -hmm. You can ride with the rhythms of knowing it now in your heart. You know, 
And I think that's what the mystics are trying to help us do, I think. It's reminding me when you talk about the life, death and resurrection all being collapsed in the present moment, what you said earlier about the rise and fall, but there's this, there's this sustaining, you know, connection to God that doesn't rise and fall. It's almost like the life and death of the rise and fall and the resurrection is the sustaining That's presence. right. It's like what is the mystery that unwaveringly gives itself to us in all that wavers? Mm. And is the very reality of all that wavers. And it's nothingness without that mystery. That's the poetics of it. Yes. And, and a, another way I put it, too, it's helped me to see this, mm-hmm. is let's say we define the present moment as the way it concretely is like right now, like in an instant. So if I would take a picture of myself right now with my hands like this, see, the present moment is yes. like that. Yes. Okay. If that's the present moment, we could say this, that the present moment uh, never lasts as it perpetually keeps yielding to the future. Because my hands are like this, the very next instant they're like this. <laughs> so the present moment, that is what the way it is right now, never lasts because it's perpetually yielding to what we call the future. And in doing so, becomes what we call the past. So this present moment is the next moment's past. Yes, see? yes. And that's life, death, and resurrection. The time itself is life, death, and resurrection. Yes. I think that's kind of a mystical understanding of the eternality of time. Yes. Yeah. Like that. That's that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. So, Jim, I'd just like to read this sentence from the end of Chapter 10 and have you comment on it. For it seems to me that the greatest honor which a soul can pay to God is simply to surrender itself to him with true confidence, whether it be seeking or contemplating. In a way, it feels like we don't need to know whether we're seeking or contemplating, where we we can practice this idea of surrender. Yes. Let's say, this is an important sentence, actually, really. Let's say that our the mainstay of our life is in the seeking, uh, efficacious unto holiness. And she's, this is the way I think it should be on our life on this earth. And God's present in it. That's how we follow Christ, finding and losing and so on. And then say we're graced with contemplation, as we're graced with the mystical touch, popping to the bottom of the ocean, like the oneness. And that's not given to everybody. Okay. But the point is this. Regardless of where I am, Let's say I'm even a beginner in learning how to seek. Mm-hmm. See, I'm just mm-hmm. like a newcomer seeking. Even. <laughs> I surrender myself to God completely in the fumbling ways of just learning to be a beginner because God's infinitely in love with me as I fumble in learning to be a beginner. That God's love for us is never measured by what we do or don't do. The sole measure of God's love for us is the infinite expanse of God's infinite love being given to us as we are in each faltering moment of our life. Mm. And that's why there's great confidence in being a very trusting beginner. Mm -hmm. And the more we trust, learn to be a trusting beginner, the trusting beginner suddenly can become a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. See, because we can experience God being infinitely in love with us in our faltering ways. And I, I think it's like that. Shunru uh, Suzuki, the lovely book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm-hmm. See? And he talks about the, per- the perpetual nature of the beginner 
you know, it's the one who's, who's wide open to this. Mm. The trouble is we, we accumulate experiences and try to start drawing conclusions and start wondering how far we are and, and all of that. And, but we're always returning back around that really matters is that God is in, God's infinite love is sustaining and giving itself to us right where we are, whether we're just a beginner or the event. If it comes full circle, they kind of uh, intertwine each other. Yes. That's comforting. It's comforting. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. And I think to see that is a mystical understanding. Mm. See, insofar as the poetry, that makes sense. Yes. She uses this phrase, it was given to me in my understanding. See. The very fact that something in me poetically discerns the meaning of that, even though I can't grasp it, that's the path. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. You said at the end of the reflection last week that Julian's not been one of your core mystics. You're not as familiar with her. Um, so it's been fun to be on this adventure with you, Jim. It feels like you're being you're really taken by Julian and I'm being taken with you in your enthusiasm yeah. and your... You know what it's like for me, say if I would be going back in time where I was traveling around the country giving retreats. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was practicing here with the podcast. But what if I would start giving Julian retreats? Yes. Yeah. So I would do Merton and John the Cross. So let's say I would do Julian retreats over a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. So maybe I would have done, because I would do a retreat every other weekend, maybe I'd do 15 to 20 Julian retreats over 15 to 20 years. Then I'd be with Julian, where I am with Eckhart and Merton. So, so I'm, I'm a beginner. See, <laughs> I, I'm a beginner. But I'm so touched. You know, I'm so touched by the depth and beauty of what she's saying. Yes. That um, I'm like a grateful beginner. Yes. And a certain and, kind uh, of beginner, as the cloud of unknowing would say. <laughs> yes. It, that, that's exactly right. A certain kind of beginner. Yeah. And we're all trying to be a certain kind of beginner. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for today. Yes. Look forward to listening to your next reflection. Yes, we'll do chapter five. Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thanks, Christian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.